I think that's very fascinating. I think in terms of the oil that we drill for not being biogenic, I think it's incredibly unlikely just, you know, because we can look at the rocks, we can look at cross sections, we can see the fossil content of those rocks. We know that they exist in those right environments, the depths. We can measure the thermal maturity of those rocks. So there's a lot of things that we understand, I think, that make it easy for us to understand that. That doesn't mean it's not possible. Welcome to Energy Builders, a podcast about the geologists, engineers, roughnecks, entrepreneurs, and many more that are building in oil and gas. On today's episode, we have Michael Hale of Novo Oil and Gas. Michael is a VP of geology, and uh, we talk about how he got into the industry. We talk about Gosh, a lot of things. How determining a wellbore location in a shale. We talk about how fracturing works. We talk a little bit about Titan, which is a moon uh, of Saturn, as well as some other things. So hope you enjoy our conversation and have a lot of takeaways from it. So here we go. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So I just want to... You know, like I said, just jump in and just talk a little bit about your story, how you, you know, was scrolling and checking on your your, your past experiences on LinkedIn. You know, it's, you've been in the industry 14 years now. So how did you how did you make the dive into oil and gas? And yeah. did you always intend to or what's the story there? No, um, you know, the truth is, is I'm from the East Coast. You know, I grew up in upstate New York. And then when I was 10 years old, I moved to North Carolina. And um, I went to a school that was very big on like coastal geology. And, um, you know, climate is a big, uh, you know, focus of their studies. And really, I had just reserved myself to likely wind up working in environmental, even though more than likely, I would have, if that were the option, like that that was my only option, I would have probably tried to go back to get a PhD and maybe try and go into academia or something like that. But, um, you know, I didn't even realize that energy was an avenue that I could go down. Uh, it was actually serendipity. I um, uh, About a week before I defended my master's thesis, my old roommate, uh, who had been working for the USGS, uh, um, for a while, he wound up calling me and said, hey, I moved out to Oklahoma City and uh, I think you'd be perfect for this job we're hiring. And that was for a company called Frontera Geosciences. It's a geologic consulting firm. And uh, like I sent my resume in that morning. I had a call that afternoon. Uh, they flew me out like three days later and I had a job offer when I left. I mean, it was really like one of the fastest experiences ever. And it was really just luck because this was um, at the beginning of 2008 when, you know, oil was $150 a barrel and gas was $14 an MCF. And I think they were just offering jobs to anyone with a geology background. And you know what I think is really interesting about it is that I, I technically have a geology degree, but my background's really in paleontology. I, I, I did mostly micro paleo. So, you know, I mean, I think it goes to show you that just kind of so you, your degree in that same you in any sort way for of like... field of study. <laughs> no, <laughs> I had yeah. no idea what I was walking into. No, so, so your degree path was... <laughs> So, so with that, I mean, I guess you have like the, the working knowledge. I mean, break that down for us a little bit, like going from that kind of paleontology focus that you said to like 
an exploration kind of mentality? What what did that look like? Well, I, th- I think what it is is that at first, if you kind of just think about it from like a 30,000 foot overview, it seems to not be that related. But but the truth is, is there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tie ins. Um, so because the school I went to was a coastal geology school and a marginal marine, meaning that it was paying attention to like marine margins, um, coastal environments, um, that's where most of productivity occurs. And so the types of uh, microfossils that I was studying are actually the same types of fossils that are actually responsible for the oil and gas that we're drilling now. I mean, really, I was studying like diatoms, radiolarians, uh, which are siliceous organisms, and foraminifera, which are little microscopic calcareous um, organisms. But it's things like that, those, um, you know, plankton and other organisms that live in those surface waters and then uh, sink to the bottom and get incorporated into the rock. Uh, basically, that's what generates a lot of oil and gas. So there's that tie in. But then also just being from that type of um, world where the, the focus was really on in, in depositional environments and coastal environments and using those microfossils as a proxy to understand those environments, I felt like it actually really helped me a lot because even today, you know, I'm working in the northern Delaware and the big thing that we try to do immediately is once we see a trend, we're we're trying to recreate that environment. We're trying to see where that falls into the system. And once you have some knowledge of that system, then you can kind of understand exactly what types of, you know, grain sizes you should expect. Uh, if you've got the right types of grain sizes, you can relate that to, you know, permeability, um, deliverability, all that. And so I, I actually think that even though, you know, I didn't have like a proper petroleum background, having that understanding of those coastal environments meant that uh, I could transition quite easily. It, it really wasn't that bad. It was just sort of that three to five month period of me wondering whether or not I had something wrong with my brain because the language <laughs> that uh, oil and gas speaks is is kind of different than what I was used to. But once I got past that, I felt like it was it was quite uh, you know easy. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so you said you were at the USGS, right? The U.S. Geological Survey. Is that no, no, no? Your friend was there. Um, you, one, one of my, yeah, yeah. And so, you, so this, was my friend. Yeah, my old uh, college roommate. So, did you go to work for the USGS, or was it a different company? No, no, no. I just uh, what it was was. He left the USGS and came out to Oklahoma City to work for this um, uh, consulting firm. And uh, I didn't realize that I hadn't spoken to him in a while. And then when he finally just checked in on me, I didn't realize that his career path had changed so drastically. And he was out here in Oklahoma City. Um, He thought I'd be good at it. And yeah, so it was at Frontera Geosciences. It was largely uh, using like resistivity formation images, um, looking at that and then doing kind of you know, crude petrophysics. I think Frontera fancied themselves as kind of this one-stop shop for like all of your consulting needs. Um, and in reality, they had more than adequate, you know, technical, you know, people like the the personnel uh, employed at Frontera were really top tier. But I think that the industry didn't really need something like that. You know, I think instead he, uh, Herman, the guy who started the company, maybe uh, bit off a little more than he could chew. And I think that specializing as formation images was probably a little bit, um, 
the safer bet, but you know, I think he he wanted a little more. Gotcha. So from there, so how did you go from there, like moving into oil and gas and energy, like you said, thinking you were going on an environmental path, but ending up in in oil and gas industry? How did you go from there to where you are now at Novo, um, doing exploration and production? What's the what's the arc there? So, uh, Frontera. Um, because they were doing a lot of resystemity formation image interpretation, our biggest clients were Chesapeake and, and Sandridge at the time. And so um, I had built up a really good uh, rapport with a lot of the uh, technical teams over at those companies. And so, um, you know, I started working at Frontera early in 2008. Uh, at the end of 2008, everything crashed. That's when the housing bust happened. And um, really for about a year, I was kind of concerned every single day about whether or not I was going to get let go. You know, my wife and I went from feeling like we had more money than we'd ever had in our entire lives, you know, just coming out of school and all of a sudden having like a decent paycheck um, to kind of every single week being like, what do we want to do for dinner this week? Should we go to Taco Bell <laughs> to save money? You know, so um, we were kind of living frugally uh, for about a year. And then at the very end of 2009, as um, I felt like the economy was kind of easing up a little bit and the energy companies were starting to hire. Um, I had some people reach out to me from Chesapeake and Sandridge and, and just say, hey, you know, if you're interested in um, applying, we're looking for, you know, kind of entry level geos. So I applied to both those companies and um, I wound up uh, accepting a job with, with Sandridge. So I went from Frontier to Sandridge. I was there for, let's see, three and a half years. And then um, I left Sandridge to go work for Aubrey McClendon at um, American Energy Partners. So at the time, I was kind of the only, I was the first working level geologist hired uh, by Aubrey. And, um, you know, at the time, because he's starting a new company, he was just gung ho. He was trying to get as many acquisitions done as possible. And so my job really was kind of just look at every single thing that came in the door, uh, do all these evaluations. And we wound up buying a whole bunch of uh, Utica shale acreage. And um, so after that, I, I kind of just became the team lead for the uh, Utica shale asset team uh, under American Energy Partners. And eventually that spun off and became Ascent Resources. I was there for five five years and three months. And then I left to, to go to Novo. Um, so that's kind of how that all happened. I think, you know, it just went from Frontera that relationship with Chesapeake and Sandridge to get me to Sandridge. Um, I knew John Mark Beaver at Sandridge. He left to go to American Energy Partners. He brought me over. And then from there, um, you know, I think I just got other opportunities. So. Gotcha. I don't know. Uh, I'm was when it? I, yeah, when I first left uh, Ascent, I was like, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was thinking, man, I had it so good over here and going to a company like Novo, it's a little unsure. Um, but, you know, I just kind of wanted to be in control of my own destiny, going to a small shop and hoping that if we could do things right, that we would be able to get that payday in the end. And, um, man, I, I definitely made the right decision. I, I absolutely love Novo. It's the best company I've ever worked for. And everyone there is so hyper intelligent. I just feel like a moron around them all the time. <laughs> well, well, that's good. You are, you are the, the five people closest to you, right? So, uh, so uh, you're leveling <laughs> yeah. up. You're leveling up. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's, was it like that's what I hope. 
Yeah. What, did you feel like when you were um, evaluating prospects, projects uh, at AEP, was that like drinking from a fire hose? What was what was that like? Oh, yeah. Was that like a whole new level of training, no, a, just going through so much data and et cetera, et cetera? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, the truth is, in hindsight, it makes you wonder whether or not I was even doing like, you know, adequate interpretations. It was all just coming so quickly and we just kind of had to get something out the door. Um, you know, I remember on a few occasions at like two, three in the morning, I'd get a text message from Aubrey and you just immediately get up and you're like, uh, you know, you're nervous. You're just like, oh, I got to I got to text him back or call him. And then you, you call him and he'd ask some questions. And then you're like, so jacked to the moon that you like, can't go back to sleep. And it only happened for, that was only like maybe two or three months. And after about two to three months, we, um, we had picked up a significant amount of acreage in the, uh, Utica shale. I think we had something like 80 or 90,000 acres after about, you know, three months. So yeah, first three months drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> That's the the best description. And then after that, it became more, you know, it was definitely very intense, but it was more focused. We knew what we had. We wanted to, you know, bolt on more acreage to that, um, to our core assets. We wanted to get larger, take out any company that uh, might be interested in selling. And yeah, it was just kind of balls to the wall, but it, it was a really fun time. That first you know, six to nine months was probably the single greatest learning experience of my career, just because it's it's baptism by fire. You really have no choice but to get better. And um, the the guy who was my manager, uh, my first manager at um, Ascent was Eric Higgins. He was a former exploration geologist for Chesapeake. And that guy was just absolutely brilliant. And um, he was one of those people that when you're around, you know, you immediately realize that you didn't know even a third as much as you thought you did. You know, I, I thought at the time I was a pretty good geologist. I'm like, hey, you know, I had people calling me from AEP to come lead their geo team, start off, kind of start doing all the evaluations. And then you get there and you realize like, yeah, oh, man, I, I pale in comparison to this guy. And uh, he taught me a lot. And I think from there, I tried really hard to just remember the things that he taught me and get better. And then at, at Ascent, I was surrounded by people that were really super smart, and I, I always felt like I was improving. Um, you know, I mentioned this on JP's podcast like, you know, seven or eight months ago. I don't think I've ever actually been like the best geologist anywhere I've ever worked. I've always been, I think, a, a good one. You know, I think I've, I obviously wouldn't be, be where I am today if I was terrible. But I think it's been about more than just being a geologist. I think it's, or being a good geologist, I think it's about my ability to kind of communicate uh, with management, um, deliver complex information simply, and, and also just being agreeable. I think that's kind of gotten me ahead when other people may have been more technically suited for, for the role. What, what do you think is important? You talk about being, um, well-balanced and, and being able to communicate in the, in the positions that you've been in. But what makes, I mean, for, for someone who's not familiar with like um, a, what a geologist does, like what are some of the important things, maybe like technically, but then also like um, critical thinking and personality wise, like for, for a geologist to make someone, you know, do really well as, as they're practicing geology? No, that's that's an excellent question. Um, believe it or not, it's stuff like that that I think about a lot about what is kind of expected of my role and what I need 
to do. And I think the critical thinking part is, is really important. Um, one of the things that I always say is whenever I come up with an idea, the first thing I try to do is not prove myself right, but I try to prove myself wrong. And so if I have an idea or I notice a trend and I think it might work, the first thing I start doing is I start listing out all the ways in which like, what could I look at that would immediately disprove this? Or like, how could I find out whether or not this is wrong? And I start looking at that checklist. And if it, it still stands up at the end, then I feel pretty good about it. Um, so I think critical thinking is, is really, really important. Um, I think that um, for me, I always kind of, I, I don't know, like my philosophy is like start local, but then immediately jump to regional. Um, and I've always found that that helps me a lot. So if I'm looking at uh, an idea, the first thing I do is I try really, really hard to kind of focus in on just that idea. Um, maybe, you know, a few sections, few townships, whatever. And then immediately I jump to like, okay, I'm going to open this up to like basically the whole, you know, basin or the whole, this part of the basin, like in the Delaware, the Delaware basin is pretty large. I might expand it to like two or three counties and then try to like focus in there and try to pull in that knowledge that I had from, you know, uh, from my studies in, in college to apply what I think the depositional environment would be, um, what, what my expectations should be as far as like the rock types. And then of course you want to try and see if you can find some proof of concept. Has someone else tried this elsewhere? Um, how does that fit in? So, you know, I, I think those are kind of, that's kind of the way I address like any particular project. Um, was there some other part of the question that I feel like, or that you feel like I'm not a, uh, answering? I know that it was kind of multifaceted and I started answering probably before I really digested it. So. No, no, no. I think those are good. I mean, you're talking about kind of your process for it. I was just thinking about, you know, so yeah. many people um, outside oil and gas, you know, just don't, I mean, it's hard to think about like to be, uh, you know, an exploration geologist, someone who's trying to kind of uh, oh, right. break down yeah. and figure out what has happened in the past and look at maybe what other what other companies done? Have people drilled wells here? What you know, taking in logs, but also considering maybe old historical regional mapping or the latest data, and then bringing. I mean, is there a creative element to it as well? Yeah, I think there is. Okay, so I, I do remember now. Yeah, uh, the best way I could describe this is that uh, a geologist thinks in abstractions, right? Um, like an engineer. For, for an engineer, things have to be certain. It has to be either like black or white. There is an answer or there's not an answer, right? It's like, this is the answer or there's a wrong answer. But for geologists, things are a bit more abstract. And so um, the way I would kind of describe what a geologist does and uh, an exploration geologist in particular is we have to understand those abstractions. Uh, we also have to think in four dimensions. I know that that's a really weird concept for people, but you know, you're thinking in the X, Y, Z, you're thinking in those three dimensions, but you're also thinking through time. Because remember that all geologic processes take place over a very long period of time. And so you have to kind of understand not just how um, something that you're looking at is there, but how it got there, right? So a good way to kind of approach it is you start very low in the section and you kind of work your way up through. So by understanding the geology that preceded something, you can understand how you got to that particular feature. So, 
yes, you mentioned looking at logs. Um, a geologist looks at a ton of logs, right? If, if you're not familiar with what a log is, it is basically a bunch of squiggly lines that represent readings taken from or taken from the rocks. So you know, you drill a well, you put these tools down in the hole, and those tools are taking a whole bunch of readings. They're reading the resistivity of the rock. They're reading the amount of uh, density, or, you know, we convert that into porosity, but uh, the amount of pore space in the rock. And it's also measuring um, the amount of neutron radiation that we're getting. So basically, how much, um, how much, uh, either water or hydrocarbons, it's measuring hydrogen. So like how much of, uh, of the fluid in those pore spaces is either water or hydrogen. We also want to look at the radiation coming off of the rocks to figure out whether or not it's sandstone, limestone, shales, right? So a geologist, uh, we obviously want to be focused on anything that has deliverability. Well, shales typically aren't good deliverable rocks, but we also know that over the past 15 years, the shale boom, you know, has been all about going to the source rock, going to those organic rich rocks. Um, um, going directly to them, but they're tight. They don't have much deliverability. So you need to have some type of technical way to stimulate those rocks and get it out, right? So I think what we try to do as a geologist is understand that some of these rocks are not going to have much deliverability, but try to look for the most favorable conditions so that we can help um, help to target and help the drillers to understand exactly where to put the well bore. So we're going to try and look at everything, map up where we think the best rock is going to be. And then once we map it up, we will come up with a plan to say, this is where we want to drill. These are, this is the specific interval within this uh, area that we want to drill. And this is the target interval. It's 30 feet wide. You know, this has the right amount of silica and carbonate, and it should be frackable. And this is what we're, we're going to go for, right? So that's kind of, uh, that, that's kind of it. When you're looking at all those those minute details about like a shale, you were talking about shale. Um, uh, how important is it like to stay in that window? And, and can you explain that? Like if you're in said formation, you're looking for these certain attributes in the rock Yeah, and keeping your wellbore in those. Talk about that a little bit. No, absolutely. You? Yeah. So the type of rock is really important to a geologist. Um, so permeability is directly related to grain size and, you know, starting from smallest to largest, you know, clays are the smallest grain sizes. They're very tiny. You know, I think they go from like one sixteenth of an inch to one two hundred and fifty sixth of an inch. So these are incredibly small, largely, you know, microscopic type grain sizes. Um, and then above that is silt and then sand and then, you know, gravel and cobbles, things like that, boulders. Um, for a geologist, we want larger grain sizes because larger grain sizes mean that they have better interconnectivity of the pores in between them. So, you know, typically when we are out drilling wells, we're going to look for things like sandstones. Sandstones are amazing reservoir rocks. They do a great job of both storing um, hydrocarbons and delivering them. So, um, the best way to find out whether or not something is a sandstone is uh, we can use like a, a quartz proxy, right? So um, petrophysically, we can we can basically back into it and figure out how much of that is quartz. But we can also look at the, the logs and the log response between the density porosity and the neutron porosity um, will tell us uh, whether or not something is a quartz rich rock. Um, now, limestone also works, but but Quartz-rich rocks are kind of the best. 
So if we are looking at clastic rocks, meaning that rocks that are made up of sediment, um, what we're going to try and do is in that log profile, that vertical profile drilled through, you know, the the reservoir, we want to find those specific intervals uh, in in that zone that have the most favorable characteristics. So you know, typically, like I said, we're going to look for like quartz rich rock or we can look for for limestone. Um, but the reason for that is because, like I said, it has porosity, um, it has deliverability, but it also has frackability. Um, clays tend to behave very plastically, which means that if you try and drill into a clay rich rock and then stimulate it, you'll probably break open the rock. But the reality is, is that you'll break it. You know, you can frack it. The sand will go into it. But then those um, fractures will literally just seal back off. A lot of times clays, um, you get sand just embedding it onto the fracture face of the, the shale and it'll just close off. But if you have um, sandstones or limestones that are, are more brittle and you can break those rocks easily uh, by, you know, injecting um, water under, you know, very high pressures, then you can uh, propagate those fractures open and then line them with with, um, with sand. So the reason we care a lot about the specific target interval in, in that rock is because that's going to be the best way for us to open up that rock, keep it open. And then also, um, because it's near field, um, the way drainage typically works in reservoirs is like you target something and you're going to stimulate it. And over time, that stimulation may be like a really large window. You might drain, you know, three or 400 feet at first, but all of the data that we've ever collected, you know, we collect a lot of like um, fingerprinting data. And we've also done things like biota, which uses DNA diagnostics from uh, microbes living in the uh, uh, subsurface to help us narrow down um, our drainage heights. And what we found is that yeah, it may start off three, four hundred feet at first, but almost always within a month or two, um, you are basically only draining about a hundred feet around your wellbore. So, trying really hard to to land that wellbore in the best rock means that that near field drainage, which is going to be your long term support system, will always be the best. So that that's why we care a lot about where we specifically put those wellbores. Is you know one, like I said, just it's a good. You know, it's a good habit to target the best porous rock, but two, brittleness, uh, frackability, and then deliverability over the long term. That's great, great, exp- great explanation, Michael. And can can you talk about a little bit, like you talked about, you frack this, and can you let's let's explain a little bit, like, and talk about what fracturing is, because I think a lot of people hear that and think. You're going to frack it. You're going to open it up. And it sounds to them like you've just got a bunch of now boulders underground that have space around them that can move. But when you frack a brittle shale and then force sand in there, uh, I mean, I'll let you explain that. But, you know, putting in that frack sand and it basically... You know, so, I mean, not to beat this again, I've, I've talked about this before, but I was just talking to James Van Alstine about this, about, um, you know, some people think there's just like underground, like open caves that are just filled up with oil. <laughs> yeah. And what's what what you're talking about is it's not that it's rock yeah. that has porosity that allows the oil to be bound up inside the rock. So Talk about that a little bit, the fracturing and then what the the frac sand does in, quote unquote, keeping the zone open and what that actually like looks like to to the naked eye. Like if you could see that in a cross section or at the surface, what that would 
look sure. like? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll back up a little bit even further because I think this will be just kind of a natural progression. So okay. when I was younger, a kid, I literally thought that basically what you said was true. I thought that for some reason there were just like caves in the subsurface that were just filled with oil and that uh, whenever you were getting oil, basically you drilled down into one of these caves and you just drained it. It never occurred to me ever what would happen if that were true. If you literally evacuated an entire cave filled with uh, you know, oil or gas or something like that, the amount of weight of the overburden above that would basically cause a lot of that to collapse, right? You would basically, you would probably see that expression right. on the surface. So that can't be true, right? Instead, what it is, is that, you know, over millions and millions of years, very small um, microbes, uh, you know, bacteria, and then single-celled organisms like the ones I talked about already, diatoms, radiolarians, um, Coccolithophores, uh, foraminifera, which are all you know single-celled organisms that uh, secrete like a little shell. Um, you know they will they lie on the surface of the ocean or near the surface of the ocean so that they can sequester sunlight and use that sunlight to basically uh, generate energy. Uh, over time, those things die and they sink down into the sediment and they get incorporated into the rock. Well, over periods of millions and millions of years, those sediments are buried, they're heated, and that is converted into basically a an oil-rich rock, right? All those tiny microbes inside of that rock start to basically break down and generate oil. So what it is is that the oil is trapped inside of tiny microscopic pores inside of the rock itself. So in order to get that out, yeah, as you mentioned, we have to uh, hydraulically stimulate it. And I know that that sounds like a very scary term to people, but I think it's just because it's been politicized and they hear the term fracking and they just assume that it means something evil. But in reality, all it means is that we're just taking compressed water or, you know, uh, water under pressure. We're injecting it at very high rates under the ground and we are uh, uh, hydraulically fracturing those rocks. Now, I think it's very important to remember that we're targeting reservoirs that are at least a mile below the surface. You know, where I drill in the Delaware Basin, we're targeting right. rocks that are 11,000 feet deep. You know, we're drilling anywhere from 11,000 yeah. to 9,000 feet below the surface. That means you have 9,000 feet of rock sitting on top of, of the reservoir that you are trying to stimulate. You can't turn that into rubble. The amount of pressure sitting on top of that is so immense that the rock stays intact. All that you do is literally right. just create a bunch of very small kind of hairline fractures um, over the extent of the, the wellbore. So if a wellbore is you know, approximately six or seven inches in diameter and it's about 10,000 feet long, we're just going to poke holes in that pipe, and then pump water through those holes. So what you could expect is just some type of, you know, fracture network that goes, you know, vertically and maybe a little bit more complex, uh, you know, some pattern in the subsurface. But it's going to be limited to a window around that wellbore. We don't break up the rock like we're not producing rock and pulling it out of that. You know, the wellbore has a lot of integrity and all we're doing is just pulling the fluids out. The rock still stays intact from a cross-sectional mm -hmm. view. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. I mean, if you could just saw the earth in half, you'd be looking at layers of rock and you would just find one little layer down there that would just have vertical fractures kind of at regular spaced intervals over a very long, uh, you know, a long extent. But you know, there, there's nothing to fear. And when about you're that. talking about it being, yeah. And when you're talking about it being 
two miles under the surface uh, and two miles laterally. I mean, if you were even trying to represent that wellbore at scale, you know, at a one-to-one scale. You wouldn't like see it, it. Would you even be no. able to see you that? Would, yeah, you would, wouldn't You wouldn't even be able to see that. It would be that. impossible. I mean... Much less the fractures. Yeah, it, it's... Yeah. You're trying to compare something that is literally six inches in diameter, you know, six inches to a foot, like the wellbore itself or whatever, in diameter compared uh-huh. to, you know, that's a half a foot to a foot in thickness compared to, you know, what, 10,560 feet, right? That's what it would look like. Yeah. 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 Hey, I, I, I want to take a big pivot sure. here, Michael. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with this. I had never heard this. I just recently saw this, I think, on a Twitter thread. Um, but I'm like, this is something I would love to talk to more geologists about. Have you ever heard of the – I'm Googling this. I don't remember if this is what the thread I read, but the, the abiogenic petroleum origin theory – I, have you heard of this at I all? I have not, that, no. That petroleum could be formed? Okay. So I guess it's the thread I saw, which I, I need to go find it, but it was basically saying that the, the Soviets, <laughs> uh, specifically a Soviet scientist, proposed that petroleum could be formed at high, at high temperatures and pressures from inorganic okay. carbon um, uh, in the form of carbon dioxide, hydrogen, and or methane. That's what I'm reading from, from Wikipedia. But I just saw this and I was like, that is really interesting. It was basically saying like, you know, the Western world, we've uh, in, in, in uh, academia and in the Western sciences, we've taken for granted the, the, uh, the method of, of, of hydrocarbons being formed that, did you know, you've been elaborating uh, and talking about, about, you know, the, these single-celled organisms being laid down in the sea depositionally and yada, yada, yada. Um, so I just I just saw that and I was like, huh, interesting. I'd, I'd never heard that. So I wondered if if you were familiar with that. It'd be it'd be interesting to get um, get some uh, get a group of geologists to look at these different things and then like talk about these different ideas of of uh, formation of hydrocarbons and migration and source rock, but do it in a way that would be entertaining yeah. and maybe maybe enlightening for for people outside the industry. I just saw that. And again, I'm not no, a geologist, no, that's fine. Yeah. you know, um, but uh, just wondered if you had heard so of that. I, I've not heard of that, but I mean, the thing is, is that we, I, I do know that hydrocarbons can form inorganically. I mean, I don't know if you know this, I, I'm like really big into, uh, you know, astronomy and, and planetary geology. I'm very fascinated with our solar system and, um, mm. and the, the different celestial bodies in our solar system. And, um, Titan, which is one of, uh, um, I believe it's, uh, I think it's Uranus. Yeah, I think it's one of Uranus's moons. Uh, I can double check that. Okay. Um, might be Saturn. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. It's just escaping me at the moment. But it has an ocean of liquid methane on it. Uh, largest largest moon so of Saturn. Saturn. All right. So um, Titan is one of Saturn's moons, and it has an ocean of liquid methane. So, you know, where did that methane come really? from? I mean, I, I think it's I think it's very possible that you could have um, microbial life living on these 
you know, celestial bodies in our solar system. I actually think it's almost a certainty. But in order for that an ocean that size uh, to get there, it, it almost certainly had to have formed by by inorganic methods. It just clearly the temperatures and pressures were were right for it to condense. I mean, I think what it is is that it's so cold at that part of space that it just physically that gas cannot physically or methane cannot physically exist as a gas. Right? It can't exist in a gaseous state. Um, so that, I think that's very fascinating. Um, I think in terms of the the oil that we drill for not being uh, biogenic, I think it's incredibly unlikely. Just you know, because we can look at the rocks, we can look at cross sections, we can see the uh, you know fossil content of those rocks. We know that they exist in those right environments, the right. depths. Uh, we can measure the thermal maturity of those rocks. So there's a lot of things that we understand. I think that that make it easy for us to understand that that doesn't mean it's not possible but yeah sure maybe it could be a both and who who knows but i I was just this is continuing down this uh this trail of of interesting uh uh, side side passages um i'm i just got for christmas uh the the travels of marco polo i'm reading that and he talks about um they talk about, um, gosh, I'm not going to remember it now, which country, uh, this would be in Asia, where there was oil, where there's oil, a fountain of oil that comes out of the earth. Um, and all the people in the region use it for burning lamps and for um, trade um, and people from many miles around come in. And so he was comparing it with whale yeah. oil, but it was something that Europe was not familiar with. And I just thought, that's interesting. I mean, that, that brings back to mind the old... Uh, uh, oh, what was the old TV show back in the day? Uh, uh, the Beverly oh, Hillbillies, yeah. you know, where they, they, they <laughs> he fires the rifle and then strikes oil at the surface. You know, this this kind of idea of of of, of a fountain of oil being in the middle of a of an arid region. Um, well, I mean, I've read about uh, uh, not just yeah, I've, I've read about there are places in California where, from what I understand, there are just like oil seeps coming out of the rocks and some of the cliff faces. So I've always found that really fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My father grew up in California and my uh, grandfather uh, worked for various different oil and gas companies. He was in Colorado and California and here in the mid continent. And uh, yeah, he was like when 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 he was a young man, you know, you had oil tar all over yeah. the beaches um, because you, no one went to the beach. You'd be covered in oil. Um, so that's an argument for uh, offshore drilling being very environmentally friendly because it cleans yeah, up the beaches absolutely. and, and, and makes it nice, not, not only for humans, but for, uh, you know, the different marine life there. So Michael, this has been awesome. I think we could nerd out on some of these, um, these, uh, I mean, th- I did not know that about yeah. uh, Titan with the, uh, did you say it was um, yeah. uh, methane, a methane yeah, lake on methane. Titan? Yeah, methane lake and uh, fountains of oil bursting up on, a, on the other side of the world. So, yeah, I mean, the whole point is our, 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 this earth and, and, and the universe is a, is a pretty incredible place um, that uh, sometimes we think we've got it all figured out, but really we've just figured out a small portion of, of it out. So, uh, I, I love, uh, having these, uh, kind of digressions and, and nerding out on these different things. So thanks for bringing that up. And, uh, where can people go to find out more about, uh, about you, Michael and, and Novo oil and gas, where should we send them? 
Well, you know, Novo, we don't have a LinkedIn page. Um, you know, we did. Uh, we got rid of it. I think it was recommended that we get rid of it because of like cybersecurity issues. I think some people target things based off of mm. LinkedIn pages. So, um, so we don't have a, a, a Novo page, but I mean, obviously you could check out our website, uh, NovoOG.com. Um, so it looks like Novoog. It's pretty cool. Um, but, but, um, gotcha. you know, what I can tell you is we're, Novo formed from the ashes of Payrock. You know, Payrock was uh, made their bread and butter in the, um, yes. the I think it was the stack. Uh, yeah, they, they were a stack player yeah. and they uh, sold. We, we turned some we turned some acreage to Payrock, various Payrock entities back right? in the day. Uh, I didn't so. know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Payrock, yeah. Um, they were a stack player and um, they sold their asset back in 2016 to Marathon. As soon as that uh, was over, um, they split and um, the technical team, so it was like reservoir engineering, um, geology, and then finance, which is a weird pairing, but finance, geology, and, and um, reservoir engineering left and started their own company. And that's, that's how Novo formed. Um, originally, uh, our goal was that we wanted to find kind of an analog, very similar to what uh, we were doing in the um, in the stack. So we targeted the the Barnett slash Merrimack section of the Midland Basin. We um, drilled several wells over there, like three wells. Um, they probably would be economic today. Uh, actually, there's a ton of companies that are out targeting the exact same thing uh, in the Midland Basin right now. But when we mm. did it back in 2017 and 18, uh, oil prices kind of fell pretty quickly. And all of a sudden, the wells that we yeah. had were no longer really economic. So we, we let that lapse. Our entire focus right now is the Delaware Basin. Um, we have acreage in Eddy County and Culberson County. So we're both Northern Delaware and Western Delaware players. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of really it. I think, you know, uh, people, uh, yeah, but people can find, so they can find uh, more about Novo yeah, at the website, can. novoog.com, and they can find you, Michael Hale, yep. on LinkedIn. Yeah, or you is, could, that, is that a yeah, good place to send Yeah, you could email them? me, uh, mhale at novoog.com. I try to do my best to respond to anyone who sends me a message. Uh, sometimes it takes me a bit. I flag them. But. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please do us a big favor and leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to or share with someone you think might enjoy this content. Thanks a lot for listening to Energy Builders. Energy Builders.